we are recording this as a pickup because something very surprising happened. It did. We are thrilled and delighted to discover that we are a finalist for the BSFA Award for Nonfiction, um, which was announced after we recorded our podcast, but before it dropped. So we're doing an extra special bit. And this is it. And we are nominated in nonfiction alongside Anna McFarlane, Joy Sanchez-Taylor, Mark Bould, Francesca Barbini and Val Nolan. So congratulations to all the other people. They have all been nominated for writing and editing books um, and we have been nominated for this. <laughs> it's fair to say that this is an outlier in BSFA Award nonfiction nominations. We're quite pleased though. Um, bewildered. Is that the word you use, John? Bewildered. Bewildered. I am... I think Bewildered captures, I'm delighted and I'm very excited. And also, I was quite surprised when we were on the long list. So my surprise at being on the short list is quite a lot higher. I remember I told I told John when he got back from the pub, I said, check your email. <laughs> Liz. Liz is on location and so her audio may be a bit more muffled than usual. Yes. We recorded early because I am on holiday. And so this is an unplanned emergency octothorpe session we have convened to say, yeah, it's very exciting. I don't think I've ever been nominated for any award. So that's very exciting. I think we're the first podcast to be nominated for BSFA Award. I mean, I haven't checked every single nominee, but I think so. And yes, when I looked at the long list, I was like, oh, that's a good bunch of, you know, serious academic and critical works were on the, the, the long list and I thought there would be a short list of those and so it's very nice for us to be on it but I am slightly bewildered but also pleased that people like it apart from John who is as previously as established John is a novel so not eligible sorry John <laughs> is John a novel? yeah I'm trying to do a running gag it is no yeah we did we did decide that I was a novel uh, and therefore um, when? when? Uh, last episode episode before oh you probably weren't listening. Shh, don't give away my secrets. Um, it's hard to get running jokes going yes. when none of us can remember what we said on the previous episode. <laughs> but we'll try. We'll keep trying. But it, it does tie into the running joke where Alison doesn't listen to the podcast, so that's good. <laughs> I listen to the podcast repeatedly. I listen to the podcast when we recorded it, then I listen to the podcast in editing, and, and then I sometimes listen to the podcast when it drops. And... and this is very embarrassing, really. Sometimes if I'm feeling a bit sad, I just listen to a back episode of the podcast and it cheers me up. I, I, I might. That's very sweet. You, you are allowed to just, just call us, Alison. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's not the same. Um... <laughs> my colleague Martin posted on my Facebook post about this saying, did they read your scientific papers? <laughs> and I, <laughs> I think he saw science fiction and thought, aha, but uh, but even if they had non-fiction, we've managed to go off topic, listeners, and we've been recording for a grand total of four minutes and 50 seconds. So... Oh, no, I've got one more, because we ought to say extraordinary general meeting. What? Just just as a complete non-sequitur? Well, no, this was like it's an emergency octothorpe. And I was I, I wanted to say, yes, it's it's our extraordinary general meeting. I like to think of us as an emergency holographic octothorpe. <laughs> yeah, anyway, we've recorded enough nonsense. 
Can I be played by Robert Picardo? Well, I have to fight me for it. Who's Robert Picardo? We're making Star Trek jokes now. He played the emergency holographic doctor in Star Trek Voyager. Um, thank you very much to BSFA members for nominating us. And the voting opens today. So do go and read those very good works of critical science fiction and vote. Um, members of the BSFA and members of the EastCon are eligible to vote in the BSFA awards. Um, and the awards are going to be given out at. EasterCon at the awards ceremony. Yeah, and it's a good good fiction shortlist, so you should also go out and read as much of that as you can before the voting deadline. Yeah, lots of great fiction on there. Yes, agreed. I'd love to say it includes books I've read, but I'm not sure it does. <laughs> this was the Octothorpe podcast drop-in. Yeah, please chop most of the nonsense out of that. There was a lot of nonsense about baths and so on. Hello everyone and welcome to the 52nd episode of Octothorpe, a podcast for science fiction and science fiction fandom. This episode is coming to you on the 3rd of March 2022. I'm John Coxon. I'm Alison Scott. And I'm Liz Batty. And today we have a letter of comment all about boxing from Christopher J. Garcia. I feel we brought this one on ourselves, really. Yes. Basically, there are lots of boxing organisations. If you'd like to know more, talk to Chris about that. He does also say that he likes the games Hugo, and he talked a little bit about short films and says he would like to see more of those on the ballot. Um, But, you know, they don't end up on the ballot, so that's sad. He makes a recommendation for a short film called The Fantastical Flying Books of Mr. Morris Lesmore, and we will link to it in the show notes. We will. I think I have that. I think it was a free film on iTunes at one point in the days when you still bought media for it to be on your computer as opposed to just streaming everything from some sort of amorphous mainframe somewhere. But it is also on YouTube, so, you know, now I can stream it from some amorphous mainframe somewhere. Hurrah! Thank you very much for writing in, Chris. Thank you, Chris, for writing in. We think we should also add that he did explain all the boxing organisations by analogies to uh, science fiction and fantasy awards, which is obviously the best way to explain things to this podcast. So basically, if it's been anything to us, you have to do it in terms of science fiction awards. Yes. How would you explain the Hugos in terms of science fiction awards? Recursively. Yeah, no, you'd have to shove them. Never mind. Peter Sullivan emailed us to tell us where to find the Christmas Taff website. Um, and we'll put that in the show notes. And Ming wrote on Facebook to ask how I won TAF without getting the most votes. Is this some sort of fanish first-past-the-post system? And um, Alison commented saying that it's much more complicated than that, which it is. Um, Basically, there were four people in that race, and in order to win, you had to have at least 20% of the vote on either side of the Atlantic. So you had to have 20% of the US and Canadian votes and 20% of the European votes. And I was the only candidate that got 20% of the votes on both sides of the Atlantic. Um, So Liam uh, Proven and Graham Charnock got more votes than me, but did not get the right number of votes uh, on both sides. 
I had not realised until I went to find that for Ming that, in fact, Liam got vastly more votes than you, just enormous numbers more votes than you. And I was only shy in the, on the US side by about one or two votes, not very many. So we're very sorry, Liam. But look, look, look what a great fan John has turned out to be, where he's just, you know, pissed off to Prague and have babies. Just the one baby, actually. I was going to say, plural. Um, no, Liam needed one more North American vote, and I believe I'm right in saying, I, I I might be wrong about this, but I'm pretty sure at the time someone noticed that one of Liam's North American nominators does not appear on the list of people who voted. So, uh, you know, when you're running for TAF, get your nominators to vote for you. That is a wise campaign strategy, regardless of opinions or self-promotion. I, I should say, I have voted for Anders for TAF this week, and would suggest that all of you do the same. I have also already voted for Fia. Uh, I got my vote in nice and early. Um, so yes, recommended. Yeah, so do do vote for TAF this week. Remember your second and third and fourth place votes because all the candidates are very good. The rules have since been changed such that the 20% rule is only applied when there are three remaining candidates on the ballot. And so if that rule had been in place in that form when I was running for TAF, I suspect I would not have won because I suspect Liam would have achieved 20% in the second round of vote allocation and Liam would have gone. But, you know, these things happen. Liam could just stand again at some point. Liam, if you're listening, which I know you're not, uh, run for TAF. Yeah, we can discuss separately the practicalities of running for fan funds when you have small children. There was a tweet from Peter Sullivan as well that said, for a really serious challenge, try and get a five-way tie in TAF and get all of them to meet the 20% rule on each side of the Atlantic. That's not so much a challenge as a fix. And actually, I'm not sure how that would intersect with the 20% rule doesn't get applied until there are three candidates, because if no one's eliminated, how does that work? I assume it's solved by a football match in the gardens of the Birmingham Hilton Metropole. And if you know otherwise, you should write in. We also heard from Duncan McGregor, uh, who wrote on the subject of the games, Hugo. In the grim, dark future of the Hugo Awards, they are all games, and I desperately tried to decide whether to vote for the latest Stellaris expansion, Thousand Year Vampire, or the next Warhammer 40,000 Tyranid Codex or something. This seems tricky. Thanks for that vision of hell, Octthorpe. And firstly, you're welcome. I responded saying Necrons all the way, and Duncan revealed that he has a Necron Christmas jumper, which is 10 out of 10 and should definitely win some sort of Hugo. For the benefit of our less connected listeners, what's a Necron? Uh, it's a um, race of beings whose souls were harvested by the Catan and distilled into robots to do their bidding. And they worship a god who's probably buried on Mars. And so the Adeptus Mechanicus are probably actually worshipping the same god. And that could be a bit tricky if it ever wakes up. In, in what universe? Warhammer 40,000. So they're basically sort of, uh, I've just done some Googling, skeletal robot zombie warriors. Yeah. And maybe Alison should draw us one with a Christmas hat on. <laughs> What we need is a Necron with an Octopop Christmas jumper. Oh, we do need that. <laughs> I, I will do that. I used to play Necrons when I was a nipper. Saying ever more elaborate fan art challenges for Alison. Tune in next fortnight to see what we come up with. I, I love the fact that we're talking about Christmas jumpers in February rather than, say, October when it's commercially viable. 
Octothorpe, the podcast of commercial viability. <laughs> Readers, if you want, you can email me and Liz and place bets on what we can make Alison draw, and we will try and get her to draw it without telling her what it is. And that will be very fun for everyone. So if you have any ideas, do get in touch, uh, and we can have some fun. Sorry, Alison, in advance. How are they going to get in touch? They're going to email me or Discord me. I'm around. Yeah, this is not. This is the sort of thing that does not work when our podcast scales to people who do not know us personally. Though we have Twitter accounts, you can tweet us. You could probably DM the Octothorpe account because I'm not sure if Alison remembers the password. I it forwards though. And finally, we heard from Laurie from the Hugo Girl podcast, whose uh, To Be Red Pile has been sidelined because I mentioned six weeks on last Fortnite's podcast. And sorry, Laurie, um, I hope you like it. I found out that Liz and Alison have not read it. And so at some point in the future, I was about to say near future, but, you know, what even is time? Uh, I will be uh, encouraging them both to read it so we can discuss it on the cast. Um, so uh, keep your ears peeled. And also, it would be cool if um, Hugo Girl discussed it on their podcast because it did end up as a Hugo finalist. On the subject of Hugo Award finalists, the deadline for nominating for Hugos is the 15th of March, which is just under two weeks from when this episode will drop. So you should all nominate things. Nominate the things you like. I will be nominating things I like, um, one of which uh, we may be discussing later. Ooh, foreshadowing. Uh-huh. We put a list of some of the things we like on the fan categories in Cola Bullet's blog. So, for instance, I will be nominating the fabulous Banana Wings. I will be nominating the excellent Sue Mason. I will be nominating the incomparable Become the Teapot. And I will be enthusiastically getting behind... Espana. <laughs> I'll be nominating Sandra Bond. So those are four examples of fans I will be nominating in different categories. Uh, So, yeah, do get on and nominate. Who are you nominating, peeps? Well, I'm definitely nominating Sandra Bond now that you mention it. And um, I'm nominating Claire Brawley and I'm nominating Mark Plummer. I am going to nominate for fan artists as well as the people on that list. I'm going to nominate Ulrika O'Brien. And then, then like science fiction books. I'm definitely um, nominating the actual star, but I still haven't read enough science fiction books published in 2021 to fill up my nomination categories. I am I'm going to nominate The Unraveling by Benjamin Rosenbaum, which is a 2021 novel. I am going to nominate something from Mythic Quest, and I am torn as to whether nominate to nominate like the whole of season two in Best Dramatic Presentation Long Form or whether to pick my favourite episode of season two, or whether to pick the episode of season two I think everyone else is going to nominate. So I have to do some thinking there. Because my assumption is that if there is one episode which appeals to Hugo voters, it will be the one about uh, young Carl Longbottom becoming a writer. Oh, is, is Al- sorry, Alison's gone fingers in her ears because she hasn't seen it yet. <laughs> it's not really a spoiler, though. No, no, it's fine, it's fine, it's fine. I didn't hear it anyway. So I think I'll probably nominate that episode, yes. But I did also like the one where they have to decide if they're uh, wolves or or sheep. That was great. And it's like a bottle episode all in one episode. And it is a great episode. Um, But maybe not the one which will appeal most to the Hugo voters. Maybe not. It seems likely that if Mythic Quest got a Hugo finalist spot, they'd be quite excited about that, given that they've got a nebula in their show, wouldn't it? Possibly. 
Oh, I just want to tell you, John, while I was looking up the name of the episode of Mythic Quest, you can apparently now read the Tears of the Anaran story. Oh. It's presumably it's terrible, so I might have to look at that. Chicon are planning to be hybrid, but the exact details of that haven't been announced yet. They also haven't announced things like platforms and whether they have a virtual membership or any of that sort of stuff. They have, however, appointed a virtual program lead, which is Eddie Louise. Um, I had a chat with Eddie a couple of weeks ago that was very interesting. Eddie led tech for both the Firecons, so she has very... um, good chops here and she also has been involved in the nebula um weekend so so that's where her background in running virtual events are from that that she's very excited about the possibilities of virtual and all the decisions have been made she's kind of talking about all the sorts of highly engaged um virtual programming that we try to do the sort of thing we try to do with punctuation and the sort of thing that I particularly like. So I'm quite excited about that. I ended up talking to her because I had volunteered help on Fanzine Lounge. Um, and if I'm not going to be a Chicon, then I'm very happy to kind of run the virtual Fanzine Lounge for them. If I am a Chicon, I guess I'm going to be doing some stuff on Fanzine Lounge. And I've promised a note on what a virtual Fanzine Lounge might look like, which I very much need to get on and do. I will be going to Chicon's hybrid stuff if there is any. I have a Chicon supporting membership, so hopefully there will be something included in that. I quite enjoyed the Discon virtual stuff, but I have to be honest, probably not enough to pay an uplift to a virtual membership if it's more than a supporting membership. So I do kind of hope it was only twenty five dollars. I do. I didn't get twenty five dollars of value out of it, and so if it costs that much again, I would not pay it. I don't think, and I don't really see what the twenty five pounds bought or twenty five dollars bought. But maybe I'm just not thinking about it properly. This may not be the right podcast for this argument, but I mean, you could say, what does fifty dollars for a fourteen membership get you? Um, it essentially gets you at this point sort of voting rights, nominating rights. Uh, site selection voting rights and the hugo packet which is all free stuff donated by the people who made that stuff so you know i can see an additional monetary cost could be involved in doing the virtual program but i think the 50 dollars you pay for supporting membership like if i'm trying to put a dollar value on what i get out of it it's like i'm sure you could actually do a feasible supporting membership for much lower if it weren't for the fact that kind of you have to set it at a certain a certain number because of the multiple of supporting rate conversion or whatever it is. I, I take your point, but like the number of books I read in the last Hugo Voter Packet, I think I thought it was well worth the money. Yeah. So I appreciate it doesn't cost the Worldcon that much to do it, but I definitely get that much value out of it. I, I guess like I'm drawing, I guess I'm muddying my argument a bit here, uh, which is unhelpful. Um, but no, I mean like, and I'm sure lots of other people did get the value. I'm just not sure I did really, um, but that's fine. Different strokes. The one of the things people point to as the cost of the virtual membership is actually the stream out and stream in costs of the physical convention. And I am beginning to argue more forcefully that the virtual members shouldn't be picking up those costs, that it's actually part of the cost of putting on the convention, or they shouldn't be picking up all of those costs. Um, so, 
and and certainly that was the argument is that you have to have you have to have better IT in lots of different ways to do the stream out and stream in than you do just to have people in their own homes using their own equipment. One of the things that we're going to discuss today is what you want from an Eastercon bid. So those who are listening in the States or those who are more familiar with Worldcons will be familiar perhaps with the thing called the Fanage Inquisition, which is a kind of standard list of questions that's sent out to Worldcon bids. Um, but we don't really have an equivalent for Eastercon. And I was curious what Alison and Liz and the listenership, that's you, thought are the key bits of information you would like to know about an Eastercon when you're deciding whether or not to cast a vote for it. So, full disclosure, Alison and I obviously have horses in this race because uh, we are both involved with upcoming Eastercon bids. Uh, Liz is currently, listeners, you can't see, but she has leaned back. Her hands are on the back of her head, her elbows are wide, and she looks like the most relaxed person in the world and i'm very envious of her she looks so smug listeners you don't understand so smug she does look like a person who is not bidding for an eastercon and feels like she might have dodged a bullet um and seeing as i feel like somebody who actually threw my threw myself in front of the bullet um so liz do you want to start like do you want to do you want to kick things off with what you look for in an eastercon bid can can i put in something that's only slightly relevant here, which is that in a search to find out what other people put into their Eastercon presentations, John asked for previous Eastercon material. And so far that has turned up, as well as some serious presentations, the bid video for the 1988 Eastercon, which is hilarious. Um, and which I suppose I, there's no reason I couldn't put on YouTube for the delight of and edification of Octothorpe viewers. Well, and I just really liked that because it was nice to see what Eastercon bidding was like for the year I was born. Yeah. Oh. It was the year before you were born. This was done for 1987. But it also turned up like a kind of script with timing details for the second Jersey bid. Uh, what, what do I look for in an Eastercon bid presentation? I like to know who's doing it and why they might be good at the jobs they have chosen to do. I like to know where you're having it and why it is a good place to have it. And if there are significant drawbacks to that location that you can't avoid, it's nice to know those up front as well. I don't think I want you to necessarily show me that you have a fully-fledged code of conduct and harassment policy and access policy, but I want you to tell me that you are committed to having those things. And then I would like to know why your Eastercon will be particularly fun. Uh, essentially, the way I'd like to know what your Eastercon is going to focus on, what you think is a key part of Eastercons, and what you're going to do to make that happen. Oh, yeah. And I think also, if you're planning to ditch any massively significant bits of Eastercon tradition, it's possibly good to mention those in the bid session. Like, if you're not planning to have any guests of honour, you should probably tell us. If you're planning to do it in a campsite or butlins, then you should tell us. And also, you should be short and sweet because it's Sunday morning and I'm probably hungover. That, yep, that's all very fair. Brilliant stuff. You're going to disagree with me now, John, on the podcast, no fun. Uh, well, I'm going to let Alison go next. She'll disagree with me. I think Liz has covered most of the main things, 
but under who's running it and why, you, you do kind of want to get a sense, A, that they're covering the set of work that has to be done. Um, there's something about financial probity because there's some assumptions about Eastercons being not-for-profit and the committee not benefiting from it. And it's all it's all very assumed, but I think, and we tend not to say it out loud, but one of the things we do is we look at the people who are running it. And if it wasn't a group of people that were already in that network, I think people probably would be saying, well, what, why are you, what, what, what is it that you're hoping to get out of it? Something about Eastercon philosophy, maybe, but I don't know if people really care. People just want to know that it's going to be in a nice place and they'll have a good weekend. If you're going to be not on the UK mainland, I think you probably need to say quite a lot about why. So one of the things that they say in the um, Worldcon Vanish Inquisition is, for what dates are you bidding? And um, generally speaking for Eastercons, we're bidding for Easter, but it's not absolutely guaranteed that will all be, always be the case. That's, there's a reason why there's reasons why Worldcon moved off the Labor Day weekend, and, and those reasons also pertain to Eastercons to some extent, which is if you can only get the site you want some other time, people might do that. If you actually go and look at the Fanish Inquisition, it's all full of things like, what's the nearest airport to your city and what are airfares like? And I'm like, oh, for God's sake, can people not use Google? I, I think... That probably is covered a little bit under Liz's Eastercon traditions um, proviso. Um, but yes, no, I think that is um, a good point. The one thing that stands out to me that neither of you have mentioned is price. I like knowing what the price of the membership is and what the price of the hotel is. One of the reasons why, although I know, going back to your point about the Fanish Inquisition and kind of um, flights to nearby cities... I think having an idea of how much it costs to get to the location is good, which kind of folds into your um, point about off offshore Easter cons as well. Um, I haven't not been to an Easter con since they started, so I've never been put off by the price, but I think it's something I look for. It, it does, but if we were to decide to hold Easter con in, say, Bristol or Aberdeen, I think there would be quite a lot of criticism about the cost of getting there from London, and I think there probably shouldn't be you know, or or getting to Bristol from Glasgow or whatever. So, you know, I think it it's right that the Eastercon should move around the UK. You could obviously say, oh, it's cheapest for everyone on average if we always hold it in the Hilton Metropole Birmingham. Plus, it has an excellent garden suitable for football matches. I think you've got to counterbalance considerations of cost with the considerations of access and and i i for one would love to see for instance an eastercon held in cardiff or in northern ireland and although they would be more difficult to get to than some other venues i still think that would be fabulous um so yeah so there's a thing about beer as well which is that if you do not say anything about beer people will ask you if you're going to have real ale and we have just discovered that at least one recent Eastercon covered its entire food and drink spend requirement on takings over the real ale bar over the weekend. So um, so it's not marginal. We start to get people going, oh, the beer thing is marginal, but it, it probably isn't marginal. There's a real question of whether if you don't have beer at your convention, you could possibly satisfy the square the circle of um, making the convention work. And there's a load of questions that people will ask you whether you say anything about them or not. You should probably say something about children and how you're going to deal with them. Because although there are not that many children at EasterCon, um, it's really important that 
people with kids can still get involved in EasterCon and are not expected to just leave their children with their other partner for the weekend and go off and have a jolly. I would also say that um, at the moment, I would probably like to know what your plans are for virtual and or hybrid conventions, uh, should you need to go for that. But also to say that there's another thing I judge off your EasterCon bid presentation, which is not necessarily the the content of your presentation, but can your bid team put together a good presentation and present it and, you know, have slides and do it all in the right order? Because if you can't manage to put together a five-minute presentation to tell me what you're going to do in two years' time, then I have a lot less faith that you will actually put together a good convention. I think that's fair. Yeah, I remember when the Hugo Losers Party was being run by the subsequent Worldcon, somebody explaining to me that it was the first major event that the that the winning team organised and it was used as a sort of prior warning by the shadowy cabal that actually runs the Worldcon because if the sitting Worldcon couldn't manage to run a party, then you knew there was a major problem. And the big presentations like that, you, you want to see that they could do a big presentation. One thing that Liz touched on that we haven't talked much about is obviously um, access policies are important, but discussions of um, the accessibility of the venue. And, 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 and Liz, you did say, like, where is it? But um, obviously, I just want to highlight that that doesn't just cover the geography, but it covers kind of whereabouts in the city is it and how easy is it to navigate? Is it two minutes walk from the station or is it alternatively on a motorway junction miles away from anywhere? Liz, do you want to pick first? So my pick is, deep breath, the 50-year mission, colon, the next 25 years, colon, from the next generation to J.J. Abrams, colon, the complete, uncensored and unauthorised oral history of Star Trek. It's a very long title for a very long book, but it is exactly what it says on the on the tin, basically. It goes from Star Trek, next generation, to the J.J. Abrams films, and it's all done by essentially excerpting interviews of nearly all the major players in the entire franchise um so it's it's basically a deeply nerdy book for people who like star trek um if if you want to hear a lot from the writers and very candidly about what they thought went well what they thought went badly you know they've interviewed a lot of people who spent a short time working on star trek and then left the you know they interviewed everyone through deep space nine and enterprise and voyager who are quite candid about what worked you know, what didn't, what kind of the network wanted them to be. And also at the end of Enterprise, kind of how they really thought they were finding their feet um, just as they got cancelled. And then it goes on and, you know, does the same about the J.J. Abrams films, but also talks about kind of all the different attempts to reboot it in the intervening time, like different film proposals and, and so on. So, yeah, it's a very long book. I haven't read it in one sitting, but I've sort of been dipping in and out of different different chapters and reading about the different sections. And, yeah, it's made me want to go and watch some Star Trek again. Excellent stuff. I am sort of in the middle of a original series watch, but because my television platform of choice merges all of the videos I'm currently watching from every service except Netflix, so I forget the things I'm watching on Netflix and then I forget to go back to them. So I've been about halfway through Series 3 for about a year. So yeah, I need to go back. I particularly like the episode where Kirk punches a thing and gets it sorted, and I dislike the episode where Kirk is a bit sexist, but the lady wanted it really. I bought the whole of the original series planning to do a rewatch, and I managed about three and a half episodes. 
I've been a bit glib there, but I do find the the approach to gender of some of the episodes is, oh my goodness, it's hard. This was a very progressive show of its time. Like the one where Kirk is a, a, accused of sexual impropriety and the solution is, oh yeah, but he wouldn't do that because we know him and he's good. And it's like, oh no, that's not how it works. Um, and I get that it was a different time, but blimey, uh, it's just hard to watch. There's some interesting and you know occasionally hair-raising stuff about this in the the 50-year mission i should say there is a previous book in this series one of the reasons it's got so many colons is there is a first 25 years book which is all about the original series and the original films but yes there are some stories of like you know the costuming of you know who can we bring into the show to kind of bring us in some sexy babes and there is a constant thread going through of how they complain about they can never find any stunningly attractive women who can act because stunningly attractive women never are never able to act or something and it's very strange so you can see kind of some of the kind of behind the scenes stuff that was still going on and i guess next generation is going back to the the mid 80s when they were starting up but you can you can see some of that um but it's also quite interesting to hear about you know when they got voyager and they were determined to have a a female captain and they cast the original an original actress who they realized very quickly was completely wrong for it and she realized as well this was completely not not what she wanted to do and then they just kind of flipped it entirely and put a new actress in there hmm interesting i feel that we need phonetic punctuation for titles like that we did have big phonetic punctuation they said colon a lot yeah but like colon <laughs> sorry can't do it sorry did i burst anyone's eardrums <laughs> i don't know where to go with this you just made some funny beeping Oh, can I can I give you one one quote that I highlighted from this book? Yep, yep, yep. Go for it. Uh, it's about you know Enterprise being cancelled. He says in England they loved Enterprise. I've done a couple of conventions there, and people are like, "Why did you cancel it?" They were baffled because it was successful and popular there. Was it English people? Write in and tell me if this was you telling one of the Enterprise producers how much England loved Enterprise because I do not remember that being the case. If you go to a convention that's about a thing in Britain and you're a representative of that thing, then all the people who like that thing will t- come up to you and tell you how marvellous that thing was. And all the people who didn't like that thing will sit in the bar drinking pints or not come to the convention. That's how Britain works. I guess I suspect in America, people who didn't like your show are more likely to tell you so at a convention. But that's not going to happen here. That could be true. Uh, interesting point. I also at some point need to finish Next Generation because I've been about two episodes into Series 7 for ages. I am in television bankruptcy. However, I have watched one more episode of The Expanse since we last spoke. So obviously, the reason we do picks is to tell you all about the great things in the uh, community that are happening and encourage you to go and experience them. And so naturally, in line with this, I'm picking a decade-old out-of-print card game uh, called Android Netrunner. So Android Netrunner was a game published by Fantasy Flight Games between about 2012 and about 2017. And it was designed by a man called Lucas Litzinger. And it's based on a Richard Garfield design that was originally published by Wizards of the Coast in the mid-90s, just after Magic the Gathering. Uh, And for those who don't know, Richard Garfield designed Magic the Gathering um, and so is kind of well regarded in the space of card games as a result. Netrunner is a particularly interesting game because... Firstly, it's set in a cyberpunk dystopia 
which I prefer to a fantasy setting because I prefer lasers and robots to magic. And because it's asymmetrical. So you are two players and one player plays the corporation and you are protecting your servers with ice, which is intrusion countermeasure electronics from uh, the Neuromancer terminology. And the other player is running on your servers trying to get past your ice and into the servers. The twist is the corporation installs all of their cards face down so the runner doesn't know what they are until they encounter the card and so there's a real bluffing element to the game which is unusual in that kind of competitive card game not many games have that bluffing angle and so it was really good it was it was good as well because it wasn't collectible it was um what they call a living card game uh, which is a thing fantasy flight have come up with and basically if you buy a pack of cards you know what's in the pack of cards and for those of you who are not super into games you might be like surely that makes sense but you would be surprised how many popular card games do not follow this simple model so this would be like when you buy a pack of football cards you could like choose which team's cards you wanted or you could buy the cards that you didn't have yet for your Panini album, rather than spending many hours on the playground trying to swap. Exactly. Where would be the fun in that? Ah, well, the fun is in the game, rather than the collecting. Pretty sure the fun is in the loot boxes. Right. So, um, Netrunner was fantastic, um, and I loved it for a long time, and I've still got a bunch of cards. Not all of them, I sold a lot, but like, I've still got enough cards. I've made some decks. I'm very happy we've been playing it recently in Casa Cox and Sheriff, and it has been great. The man who designed the modernised version of Netrunner went on to make a game called Star Wars Destiny. The problem is that these games went away, and it's very sad. But then there was a game called Arkham Horror, the card game. And Arkham Horror the card game is interesting because it borrows things from the Netrunner core design. The kind of DNA of Netrunner lives on uh, through Arkham. But me and Espania have been playing Netrunner with some of my pickup decks and they are enormously good fun. I have never played another card game like it which has that kind of bluffing element and that kind of uncertainty if you're playing the runner of not quite knowing what's going to hit you. Uh, when you're trying to get into the opponent's servers. And so I really do I really do think that runner was fantastic. And I'm very sad that it went away. Yes, if you find it on eBay, it's good. Android Netrunner. Highly recommend. And the artwork's amazing. Like on the cards, the art's just so pretty. Mark's going to write, you know. I hope so. There was a point where you got to Arkham Horror and I was like, oh no, he's just put it around <laughs> to Arkham Horror now. But if anyone's ever in my house... I have some decks and we could play. Which house would that be? My new house. Or my old house. But basically the house in which I am in. Don't go to a house I don't live in. Going to turn up at John's old house and knock on the door and be like, Netrunner! And the new occupants are going to be like... (sighs) Actually, the previous occupants of this house did also play Netrunner because that was one of the things we chatted to them about when we were looking around. That is interesting. We were actually recording six days early, which is only like eight days after we last recorded, as a result of which I don't really have a new and interesting genre pick for you. However, so my pick is uh, an anti-productivity book called I Didn't Do the Thing Today by Madeline Dore, which is all about how you shouldn't worry so much about fitting the things you do into arbitrary structures of what needs to be done on a particular date like having a pick ready for octothorpe recording but instead you should find where the mood takes you and and build your 
creative and professional structures around what is exciting and speaks to you at any given time. And there are much more important things in life than checking a box, like having a pick ready for Octothorpe. So um, it's pretty good. I've been listening to it as an audio book. It is full of quotes from other productivity writers. So if you are a productivity junkie like I am, you will be familiar with a lot of what is in this book. Um, but it's very soothing. It's full of stuff that is very reassuring about the fact that it is 4.30 in the afternoon and you have only done one of the 19 things on your to-do list today. And in particular, you've not done any of the things that had to happen today. Do I sound a bit worried? But I'm soothed because this book has reassured me that my creativity is more important. Yeah, I, I am not sure my employers would agree that it's okay if I have done anything on my to-do list by 4.30 because my creativity has been fulfilled. She does explain how to do some stuff as well. Fortunately, creative fulfilment is not a thing I require in my employment. Just in case you are someone to whom Alison currently owes work, <laughs> the address of the author will be in the show notes. <laughs> So, listeners, we're going to talk about a book that we all read. Yeah, we've all read it really recently, and it is a book that you can nominate for the Hugo, if you like. And, and this basically never happens. <laughs> Octothought Book Club. Octothought Book Club. Though if it was Octothought Book Club, really, we would need red wine and also cackling. Well, we've got one out of two. So this is also a book that if you read it, you will be reading a work by an Easter Con guest of honour because it is The Jasmine Throne by Tasha Siri. So I always or I always used to try to read a book or two by each of the Easter Con guests of honour. And that did sort of fall off my priorities list at some point. And I'm sort of trying to get back into the habit because I think it is a good habit to have. So Liz read it the least recently of the three of us. By which I mean that Liz read it on time. She had it as a pick two weeks ago, didn't she? No, I specifically did not have it as my pick because I was going to have it as my pick. And then you all said, oh, but we're going to read this. You can't have it as your pick. So I had another thing as my pick, which you briefly complained about because you were also going to read that. But then we decided getting us organised enough to read one book all at the same time is really as far as we can go. So, yes. It's fair. So, I quite liked it. Uh, do you want to tell us a bit about the book, John? So The Jasmine Throne by Tasha Ziri is a book about a country which is a colony of another larger country. And it's about two or three characters in that country and their interactions with its colonial relationship with its parent country. At the start of the book, a princess is imprisoned atop a hill but in a more interesting way than it that made it sound and we follow her and we follow someone who is from the country uh, in question and we follow a couple of other characters who are kind of either related to the princess or to the um to the second character and kind of explore um the tensions in that country and explore what it is to be kind of what it is to be in power and also what it is to meaningfully reject power and kind of the difference between violent revolution with no goal versus quiet sedition with an actual end game in mind. And I really liked it. I thought it was good. 
I thought it was very interesting the way that the book handles many of its themes. Um, I very much liked the two central characters. I really liked the world. And it made me very angry in a good way about colonialism and about how countries come to subjugate other countries. That, I think, is my kind of... That's the things I took away from it. What did you take away from it, Liz? Yeah, I would agree. I mean, what I think is it's a really impressive and interesting world into which you put some fascinating characters. I do really like the idea. I think in a, you get a lot of fantasy series where, you know, you've got sort of, you know, an alliance of city-states or an emperor who has, you know, conquered another country. And so to really focus this on the kind of conquered country and about the kind of colonization of that country, and it's very soon after it has been colonized as well. So kind of it's a really recent wound for everyone everyone who lives who lives there i thought was interesting and there were there were some parts i really liked about it because you get you know these three uh temple children who were brought up together in uh ahirania the 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 colonized country and they really between them show kind of three different ways in which you know you you can try for a for uh, for revolution and for regaining your country and i think it kind of does a a great job of discussing kind of the different aspects of of how they go about this and kind of what their vision is for the future of their their country and yeah there's a great there's a great thing where they they say that the you know the the uh parijat the the conquering country they say it has reshaped us it is not a conversation but a rewriting which i really loved about how it you know rewrites their history from the you know perspective of the oppressors and yeah it is it is the first of a trilogy so you know it does kind of you know end a little bit abruptly to give you a hook for the next book but I probably will, I definitely will pick up the next book and read it and hopefully the third one as well. I'll let Alison get a word in edgeways. Um, yeah, I quite liked it. I am looking forward to the authors saying a bit more about it. Um, I probably didn't like it quite as much as either of you two did. As Liz says, it's the first book of the trilogy and I feel like if they had cut out two or three hundred pages of wafting around in the middle of it. It could just have been a standalone book in which you put all the rest of the plot in as well. Um, I understand that I am not the target market for fat fantasy novels. This is a fat fantasy novel. Every word, every paragraph's quite nice, though it's it, it's very lush to read. It's very well written. Um, the characterizations are good. All of the major female characters were interesting and quite complicated, and I quite like that. It has a really badly drawn one note villain, which is not good and is given this absolutely no explanation for why this person is the way they are. And it just kind of is, is sits there like a kind of clot in the middle of the story. I think it might be intended as a metaphor for empire, but it's not a very good one. A lot of the other stuff about empire and colonialism is, is pretty good. It uses it uses Indian culture as the basis for its world building and that is very much underused as a way to build fantasy, which is good. Um it then does it in a way that I felt felt still felt like it was hitting the beats of a Western fantasy novel, though I didn't feel, oh yes, I'm reading something that is about an alien culture as much as I would have liked to. Uh, that's alien in the sense of alien to me. 
And I thought that was a little bit of a shame that she maybe missed a trick there. And the other trick I think she really missed is right at the beginning, she kind of introduces the rot as this disease of of breeding plantification that, that kills people. And she doesn't really, she spends most of the novel not going anywhere with it. And this is a 520 page close typed novel. There's a lot of words here, something like 160,000. And you kind of get at the end of the book, oh, wait, that's one of the plot points I'm saving back for next time. And I was like, well, that was, that, that, that doesn't leave me feeling very good about this book. I would, I, I, I I feel like the the notion that oh I can make more money if I write if I write my stories longer I really struggle with you know I don't I just I think that's honestly I think it's utter bollocks <laughs> I know I mean, we have this argument all the time but I don't think it's fair to say that the only reason to write a trilogy is because you want to make money right okay so this is the thing that really interested me the thing that really interested me about the novel was the way in which the colonialism or the colonization of the country is directly linked to the idea that the magic consists of the country asserting its of the earth and the water and the fabric of the country as well as the people reasserting its nature and rising up to fight back against colonization and i feel that the that this was introduced and then artificially left to one side so that the story about the people could be expanded for the entire novel. But the story tells, like, the story is about the initial stages of that rise up, right? I'm not sure I think you could have... I'm not sure you could have taken two-thirds of this novel out and had it land the emotional punches it lands in the places it lands them. And maybe I'm wrong... But, I mean, at least I think you'd need to do it as a duology. Okay. Because I just don't think... I just don't see how there's enough space. Like, I thought there was some bits in the middle where I thought, oh, you might be able to cut a little bit of this out. But I'm talking like you could have made it 140 instead of 160,000 words. I'm not saying you could have made it 50,000. I don't think this could have been a novella. Oh, no, no, no. But it would have had to have been a novella for the subsequent two instalments to fit in a single novel. Yeah, I mean, you know... I may be overstating this. I did think that I did think it told its story in a in a very gradually paced way and I think that's fine and I think that's fine for people who I mean you I'm probably being a bit mean here. I, I did quite like it. I think people who are looking for worlds in which they could kind of fall into and spend a long time will find a lot to like. Yeah, I th- I think it feels deliberate that the kind of pacing of the stories of the characters and how, you know, the the reveal of what is going on with kind of the, the land and the earth and the waters, you know, they're going together. So I think you can only speed up kind of the, the telling of the story as a whole rather than maybe refocus on one bit or the other. I mean, I, I would also say, yeah, it, it, it's a little bit long. I think you could probably have it be 100 pages shorter, possibly not by having fewer things happen, but maybe just by 
you know, there's uh, there's a lot of kind of paragraphs which have a lot of space to breathe and you could probably tighten those up a bit. Um, and also I think like near the start of the book, you have Princess Malini who comes to be imprisoned and meets the, the maidservant who is also part of this revolution. And it kind of takes quite a long time to get them kind of into the same space, which is really one of the driving catalysts of the book because what, you know, the relationship between them, which turns into a romance, is one of the kind of the main, I think, things driving the book because, you know, the agreements they make with one another and, you know, um, how they're going to help each other and get to their mutual goals. Like, I think you could put them together a bit faster and it would maybe, you know, Malini feels like she has no agency for kind of quite a big chunk of the first part of it. So you could get things moving a bit faster there is how I felt. And then near the end of the book, there seems to be quite a lot of basically wandering around in the forest i found the last two-thirds of the book very well paced for me i i i I thought it it really went along and i really enjoyed that i found the first third a little bit slow and i think that is because of what liz just said i think if you had had malini and priya i think it's a classic thing of the first maybe 50 pages are set up for the book but we could have had that set up implied i don't think you necessarily need to start right at the start of where all the pieces start moving you can start at the point where the pieces have got to the point where the story's starting and so and so there are a few bits right at the beginning where i think oh you could probably make that a lot quicker and especially there's one character in the book that about a third of the way through i said to alison and is like oh i'm not really sure what rail's doing in this book and they said aha you will find out what he is doing in this book uh in the next two thirds of the book and they were right but i think you probably could have spent less time with him i think those bits in the first third drag i'm also curious i i quite liked the baddie but i don't know because i liked how personal I liked how personal her relationship with him was, but also how completely her brother couldn't see why. I liked that dynamic of he had never... I like the other brother a lot. The other brother's a really interesting character. The other brother is a character that you actually meet all of the time in real life. And I I like that. You know, I, I like to think that people in books exemplify the kind of complicated characters that humans that I know are um, and and they often don't and for most of the people they do they're just complicated people living their complicated lives and doing what they think is best and I like that novels should have that fantasy novels often don't have as much of that as they need so that was good yeah they feel like it feels like none of them fit into particularly kind of stereotypical fancy archetypes they all have you know, some other things of interest about them. And I like the kind of contrast of the, you know, familial relationships between Princess Malini and her two brothers and between Priya and the other uh, temple children essentially have the same familial relationship and upbringing, but in a very, you know, in the very different environment of um, Aharanya. I was really interested in the relationship between Bumika and Vikram. I really liked the way that's depicted and the way that you find out more about Mika through the book and it becomes clear that certain things are true. But also the way that Vikram is much more complicated than he could have been, I think. He's not super deep, but like I found it interesting enough to kind of get my teeth into. And I take I take the point that Chandra is quite he is he is a bad man. Bad. I quite like that and I wonder whether that'll get expanded on in book two because in this book he's kind of the he's kind of the boundary condition he's not really the main character he's 
a thing that everyone else is reacting to and i and i think as we encounter him more as a character it might be that he has some depth or it might just be that he's a bad bad man in which case i'll probably also enjoy that i think i will probably nominate it for a hugo award unless i read suddenly a lot of extremely good books in the next four weeks which what was the one you said you were going to nominate liz uh the unraveling by benjamin rosenbaum so that is after i'm just about to read a desolation called peace which i strongly suspect i will nominate because i loved a memory called empire the unraveling is the next on my list after that yeah next next up for me is far from the light of heaven by tarda thompson which is you know which is right about to get started now and then the next one after that for me is the Catherine addison witness for the dead Oh, yes, the follow-up, or not quite a follow-up, but same world as the Goblin Emperor, which I did really love. And that was the Octothor podcast. And it's goodbye from me. It's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. You've not even got your video on, Liz. All right, I will turn my video on briefly and wave. (gasps) It's so pretty. You've got like a crazy geometric, like Moorish almost thing behind you. Uh, Yes, there's like a sort of mosaic thing on the wall. Nice. I like it. Oh, are you holiday? I don't know why I asked Liz if she's holidaying somewhere. Oh, look at the bath. Oh, my God. The bath's like a bloody... Look, listeners, you can't see it, but the bath is like an altar to baths. Like, imagine that there was a church of baths, and then imagine what the altar would look like, and that is what Liz Baths look like. It's a good bath, which I've, you know, recently emerged from. Because basically, if you've got a bathtub like this, and I don't live in a house with a bathtub, I'm going to take as many baths as possible. I mean, that that is sensible. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I think we may have gone even further off topic, and John should cut this down to just a minute and a half. The theme music for this episode was Fanfare for Space by Kevin MacLeod and Competech.com, used under a Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 license. This podcast will end at the beep. Beep.